I'm walking down the path in my garden and I have a suggestion for you on how you could help with global warming. With a large lawn, I found a simple way of making a big difference. I sold my ride-on mower and bought a top-of-the-range Cress robotic lawnmower. It runs off rechargeable batteries and uses cutting-edge technology to mow and maintain a lawn this size. The petrol mower has gone, and with it, the emissions. I actually don't know why I didn't sell the ride-on sooner. With the Cress robotic lawnmower, the lawn is actually looking better. The tiny grass cuttings fall into the grass roots, helping to fertilize the grass. And the family doesn't have to put up with the noise and fumes from the ride-on. And I've freed up more of my time to spend with them and in the garden. It's an easy step. And you could also be making that change today. Ask for Cress in your local garden machinery dealer. Or visit cress.com. Hello Spring, roll on summer with Garden Man. The outdoor furniture superstore is now online with loads in stock from sofa sets to daybeds to sun loungers and plenty more that can be delivered for free this summer when you visit gardenman.co.uk slash podcast. Today we're focusing on a vital part of any garden environment. We know that they're really important for a lot of our crops, chocolate, tea. So we're really just scraping the tip of the iceberg in our knowledge of how important these little things are. Without them, we'd be lost. We won't have apples. You know, that's as simple as it can be. You know, you don't have the fruits and the plants that will come from them. Wandering around outside without anything to look at or eat sounds bleak to me. Have you guessed what we're talking about yet? Pollinators! From flowers to the fruit and veg we eat, they're an invaluable part of the garden ecosystem. Of course, there are different ways pollination happens, including rain, wind and insects. But as wild bees and other insect pollinators are in decline, we wanted to explore today how we can support them. Welcome to the Gardening with the RHS podcast, with me, Guy Barter. On today's show, we'll hear about how to design a pollinator-friendly planting scheme with designer Humira Ikram. Grower Abra Lee will share the fascinating story of how a 12-year-old boy discovered the secret of pollinating vanilla. And we're learning about a type of vegetable that just loves a winged visitor, beans. Before all that, though, we're going to start somewhere a little different. Everyone knows how valuable bees are, but there's many other creatures that help out with pollinating, and not least of them are flies. I've used flies to pollinate cauliflowers when breeding them, introducing them into polytunnels full of flowering plants, where the flies working randomly, unlike bees that are careful and methodical creatures, cause excellent pollination in a random way so you get a wonderful population of cauliflowers to select from. I don't think people know enough about flies and how important they are as pollinators. So to put that right, today I'm talking to Erica McAllister, a senior curator at the Natural History Museum who specialises in flies. Hi Erica, it's nice to have you on the show. Thank you, it's lovely to be here. So why flies? What got you interested in flies? I've always liked ecology. I love interactions. I was very lucky enough to have quite a large garden growing up and I was quite small and quite clumsy. So I spent a lot of it lying on the ground, having fallen out of a tree 
And in doing so, I first really started looking at how all of the smaller creatures, the more magnificent creatures, started interacting. And once you start learning about flies and their interactions, there's basically no going back because they are so ecologically diverse. They get everywhere. They do everything. They are the ones with their feet. They're tarsi in all these little pollinating questions, as it were. And so I just got addicted to them. They're always turning up. Plus, morphologically, they're incredibly weird. So we have, say, one image of what a fly looks like, but they laugh at that blueprint. And they've adapted to so many forms. And they're larvae. And they're larvae in your garden. These tiny little different forms that have such unique ways of adapting to their their environment, I think is really amazing. Just so people know, what is a fly? Is there more to a fly than we think? Well, yes. I'll go for the obvious things. So a fly has, as an adult, one pair of wings. So beetles have two pairs of wings. Bees and moths have two pairs of wings. Fly have reduced that second pair into these balancing organs called halters. And these are its gyroscopic mechanisms. So it enables flies to loop the loop, fly backwards, invert themselves, do all sorts of crazy aeronautical acrobatics. They are truly awesome flies. And they have sartorial mouthparts. So like a bug, they have sartorial mouthparts, but they're not breaking up in the same way. So you actually can't be bitten by a fly. Honestly, you could be shredded and maimed (laughs) and pierced. (laughs) But then I've just told you what makes a fly, but there's many flies that don't have mouthparts as adults. And there are flies that don't have wings. So (laughs) that's what they do. They kind of laugh at what they're supposed to be and change the shapes and forms to this really quite weird, diverse range. Have you got any um, figures? I mean, a lot of people, when they think about pollination, they think about bees. But um, how do flies measure up as importance as pollinators compared to bees? Well, Are they just a footnote? It, it depends because we haven't got real figures yet. However, where we are getting proper figures is in the less common environments. So Arctic environments, there's 4,000 species of insect described, of half those are flies. Really important pollinators in Arctic, in cold zones. In fact, one of the most important pollinators is a relative of the housefly. So that little housefly that annoys you actually is globally helping secure all these little plant communities, which is great. In fact, up high in the mountains, again, that's where your flies come in. Bees get a bit cold. I know bumblebees have got fluffy jackets and they can survive, but the flies have been found higher in some of these instances. So in spring, your early pollinators in your garden are going to be the really fluffy things, like the queen bumblebee comes out, but pay attention because there's loads of fluffy flies already out there pollinating. We know that they're really important pollinators for a lot of our crops. Chocolate, I've already mentioned. Tea, having a cup of tea and a chocolate brownie. You wouldn't be having any of that in your beautiful garden if it wasn't for the flies. So how do the flies do the pollinating exactly? So bees have tongues, so they will lap in the nectar, whereas flies kind of like have, they've either got spongy mouth parts and by a process of capillary action they're able to suck up the nectar and in doing so they cover themselves in pollen and move it around so they don't have like some of the bees have beautiful little pollen baskets (laughs) flies messy food everywhere i mean you could often see them originally they were kind of like black and yellow little things and then they're bright yellow it's absolutely covered in pollen it's great fun to see 
And uh, what kind of plants do they pollinate? We talked about plants that are on top of mountains. And are there any, any other plants they particularly fancy? Loads. Absolutely loads. I mean, honestly, if you plant it, they will come. They are amazing. I, I've been looking at the blackthorn for the last couple of weeks, and it is covered in them. Hoverflies love it. And that's one of the things you've got to think about when attracting pollinators and other insects into your garden is making sure you have like a, a whole year cycle of things for them to feed on. So I've got blackthorn now, but I've got a whole wall of ivy. And people are like, I don't even just want to get rid of the ivy. And I'm like, no, because right now it offers cover for them. So if it does get cold, a lot of the insects can go and huddle in the ivy. So it's ensuring that you have a great diversity, plus also think about species native to the environment, because our insects would have adapted to those species, so they're more likely to get more nutrients from them. Some flowers look great, smell great, but they've got really poor nectar reserves. And so you, in many ways, you could be starving insects without knowing it. Thank you so much for this excellent information on flies. My head is bursting with fly knowledge. I can't <laughs> wait to show it off to the Wisley entomologists. <laughs> we do say hello to them from me. So what can we do to welcome these friendly flies and other similar creatures into our outside space? Humira Ikram is here to explain just that. She's a designer who specialises in creating pollinator-friendly planting schemes. Let's talk about what a friendly planting scheme is for pollinators. There's lots of types of pollinators, so maybe we should start there. So what do you want to come into your garden? So there's butterflies and moths. You might be really interested in those. And then after that, you might think about beetles and bugs. I mean, we don't often think about those as pollinators, but... They are. And things like the magnolia has a really primitive flower. So and that's really attractive to beetles. So, again, if you're really interested in those, maybe you should make some habitats or make sure that your garden is attractive to beetles. And then we have flies and hoverflies, which they also pollinate. And the other thing that they do are kind of biological controls for aphids and green fly and other things like that. So, you know, and for lots of common insects, for pests of fruits and vegetables. So maybe if you've got an allotment or you're growing fruit and veg, you might want to have more hoverflies and flies in your garden. Then we have wasps. I think they have the worst rep and nobody really wants any wasps. But what do they do? They pollinate. But again, they are also biological controls for lots of other insects and they have their own little habitats. So they're very useful to have in a garden. So, and then we end up with bees and we have probably about 280 species of bees in the UK. And, you know, we need to look after those. 27 of those are bumblebees. We have honeybees. And in this kind of commercial world that we live in, the value of that pollination to the UK is over £500 million per year. So that's commercially, but how can we also attract them into our gardens? Because who doesn't love to have bumblebees in their garden? When I think about creating a pollinator-friendly garden, I have a kind of list of things that I go through. And the first thing I would say is try to stop using any chemicals in your garden. Lots of people like to take out the cracks of the between the paving and put some insecticides down and, and weed killers. So all of those things, especially if they're chemical-based, have some kind of effect on your garden. And I would say, if you can, 
just stop using any chemicals. It's the first thing that I ask my clients to do and I don't use any chemicals in my own garden. The next thing I would think about is which pollinators do you want to attract? So we've talked about all the pollinators that we have. So then you have to think about the mix of plants that you'd have to have to attract all of those. And also when you're thinking about that, you have to think about the life cycle of the particular pollinators. So with butterflies, where do the early parts of their life cycle start? maybe with nettles or something in a wilder area. So if you want to attract those kinds of pollinators, you have to maybe have a couple of different areas in your garden, one possibly wilder, one possibly a bit more formal. So then you can start looking at plants. Which kind of plants do you want? So bees can see blues better than other colors. It doesn't mean that they don't go to other types of flowers, but you know, anecdotally, you know that when you go past a lavender, it's just covered in bees or napita or say something like that. The other thing that you should try and do is try and go for single open flowers that are nectar rich. Over the last, I don't know, 50, 60, whatever years, we've been trying to breed plants so that they look prettier for us. It's all about aesthetics quite a lot of the time. And so some of their sexual reproductive parts, which are part of that fertilization process, are then bred out to create extra petals. So you might get double flowers or things that are slightly bigger or blousier. So you just have to be aware that you're picking plants that are actually useful for pollinators, that are nectar rich and they can access. So that's the next part of that sort of puzzle. Once you have your list of plants, the one thing you really have to be careful of is that there are chemicals that can disrupt the ecosystem and also can affect pollinators in different ways. So in 2018, neonicotinoids were banned in Europe and in the UK because they were found to affect bees and other pollinators. And it's a neurotoxin. So, you know, it seems like a crazy thing to use, but they were used to spray over crops and other things. And quite a lot of the time they were put in to spray plants in nurseries. So that was in 2018. But since then, we have realised that there's other things, there's other insecticides, there's other herbicides, fungicides that nurseries use, and sometimes they have to. But we are unaware of all those things. So I have found nurseries that I know don't use those chemicals or use them to a minimum. And I think it's really important that if we're thinking about bees, so it's not just about getting the right plants, it's getting about the right plants from the right place so that you know that they don't have this chemical content as well, which could then inadvertently hurt the bees and the other pollinators that you're trying to attract into your garden. Why should you give this a go? And my answer is, why don't you? Gardening is supposed to be fun. We should all try this. I mean, why not try something new? Why not get out into your gardens? Think about how you can enjoy them, but also how you can make your gardens attractive to other pollinators. Thanks to Humera Ikram there. For any gardener looking to rise to the next level, I think there's so much value in learning about pollinators and how they can be used to your advantage in your designs. Throughout history, the study of these natural processes and how to replicate them has shaped so many aspects of farming and horticulture. And in our next feature, I want to focus in on a particular discovery that unlocked one of the world's favourite flavours, vanilla. If it wasn't for a young boy called Edmund Albius, we may never have enjoyed ice cream and cakes quite so much. Here to tell us about his story is horticulturalist and researcher Abra Lee.
If the vanilla bean was a Hollywood movie, it would be a thriller. It would be the rise and fall of empires, intrigue, jealousy. There would be villains and heroes, riches and tragedy. Edmund was a enslaved African child born on the island of what back then was called Bourbon or Bourbon, and it's now called Réunion. And it is a French territory off the coast of Africa. And he was born to a woman named Melise, that was his mother, and she died in childbirth. So Edmund was an orphan. He never knew his father. When he was born, he was the property of a lady named Elvire Bellier Beaumont. He was in her care for a few years of his young life. And then she gave Edmund to her brother named Ferial. And the reason she gave her brother to Ferial is because her brother owned a plantation in Bellevue on the island of what we now call Reunion. And so from there, as a little boy, Edmund would follow Ferial around the plantation look at the fruits, look at the vegetables, and then look at the unique plants. And one of them was the vanilla orchid. One day he's doing this daily walk with Ferial as usual. And at this point, he's 12 years old. It's 1841. He was born in 1829. And vanilla had never fruited outside of Mexico, like never, ever, ever in the history of the world had it gotten to fruit. It had definitely flowered, but nothing happened. So they're walking around, and Ferriol can't believe his eyes. He sees fruit on his vanilla orchid, and he's stunned. And what stuns him even more is what happens next. Edmund says, I did that. I pollinated those fruits. Ferriol doesn't believe him at first, but a few days later, he sees more vanilla bean pods on other plants. And he asked Edmund to show him the technique that he used to pollinate the plant. Those orchids were popping, like vanilla beans everywhere. What Edmund did is that he enabled vanilla to become a commercialized crop. And by the end of the 1800s, they were producing, I believe it was 200 tons. It was just incredible, incredible turnaround. When Ferriol, the slave owner of the plantation, says, hey, Edmund, show me what you did since you said you did it. What he does is that he takes the lip of the vanilla orchid flower and pulls it back. And then he lifts up, which is almost like a cap or a shield that's over the stamen. And then he takes his finger and gently presses the anther and stamen together. And when he does this, then the plant becomes pollinated and the shield will fall back down. And the very thing about vanilla orchids is that they're so labor intensive and you have to get this pollination technique that Edmund did. You have to do it very quickly. So what I mean by that is that you have to pollinate this plant on the morning that the vanilla orchid flowers before noon. And once you do it, it's done and then the flower falls off. So after the flower falls off, it takes about nine months for the pods to develop. So it's literally just like birthing a baby. When you get a vanilla bean in front of you, that's how long it takes. What is even more incredible about Edmund's story is that 
it's not that he did it, it's that he actually is still getting the credit for it. And it's a miracle that he's credit because he's this enslaved black child from Africa. And normally you don't see anyone in his position getting any types of credit. And at one point, the director of the botanical garden in Réunion with his shady self, a man named Jean-Michel Claude Richard, tried to take credit for Edmund's work. Edmund's slave master, uh, Ferial, was the one that says, you're not going to do this. Edmund is the one that credited this technique. I'm not sure if your memory has gone bad. I don't know if you've gone insane, but it's not going to go down like that in history. And he really, really fought to make sure that Edmund's name was remembered in history. In around 1848, Edmund is freed from slavery and he moves to the city from the plantation and he is arrested for theft. And he spends three years in jail. And even though his former slave owner fought for him, he got his sentence reduced from five to three years. Edmund dies at the age of 51 in 1880. And the newspaper reports it as a tragic, destitute, miserable end to his life. We have to show this sharp contrast where there are vanilla beans that are $10,000, $10,000 per pound, yet this man died horribly. Look at the wealth, the joy, the recipes that this 12-year-old orphan enslaved child has created through his innovation, his innovation as a 12-year-old. I want to get across that there are other Edmonds out there. It was interesting because in this research, I came across Thomas Jefferson fell in love with vanilla when he found out about it in Paris. And so he was the person that wrote the recipe for vanilla ice cream. Now, we know that Thomas Jefferson was one of the biggest slave owners in the history of the United States. He was not in the kitchen cooking his own food. So Thomas Jefferson really write this recipe or was it Sally Hemmings' brother who was Thomas Jefferson's chef that wrote the recipe and Jefferson took the credit. And so that's what I mean. There are so many other Edmund Albiuses out there in the world that we may never know their story. We all have access to use the power that is within us to make positive change in this world. Any everyday average Joe has the power to create and to innovate. So I think that's why they're important. And they're uplifting and they're so empowering to hear these stories. And you're able to look at yourself and know that you are capable of great things. Fascinating to hear from Abra. And Edmund Albius is definitely someone who should be celebrated more widely as a horticultural hero in my book. I always find that uh, pollinators are a fascinating part of the allotment, right from when the fruit begins to flower in April, right the way through until the runner beans give over flowering in September, when the pollinators are present all through the summer, doing what they do, increasing the crops in my allotment. And speaking of runner beans... Let's finish today with a guide about how to grow delicious dwarf and runner beans. So over to RHS Garden Bridgewater's Sylvia Travers. Today I'm going to talk about beans, specifically dwarf and runner beans. And these are the beans I associate with high summer. Picking crates and crates of them, trying to work out what to do with them, freezing them, pickling them, just trying to keep on top of the harvest. They're really simple to grow and don't require much effort. 
the main effort actually is really picking them. So I'll start off with dwarf French beans. They're really prolific and they're a really pretty addition to the plot. They can be grown in pots or a raised bed, but like most things, they like plenty of food and water. To minimise it a lot, I succession sow them in early May and then the remainder of my batch once I planted out that first batch. You can also sow a batch in June, which will give you beans in September and they'll continue into October actually if the weather's mild. You can sow them in small pots and you can plant out once the roots have filled these pots, which isn't actually very long, maybe three or four weeks. I like varieties like Canadian Wonder, which is a heritage variety with flat green pods. There's also a variety called Faraday, which is your familiar sort of pencil green bean. There's also a variety called Purple Teepee, which has got purple beans. And there's also yellow varieties, which I cannot remember off the top of my head. An interesting variety I like is one called Orca Bean. It's also called a yin and yang bean. So it's, the pod looks fairly unassuming as a green round pod, but actually the beans inside are black and white. So they do look like orca whales. And they can be eaten fresh, but you can dry them to use in casseroles. But also um, it's worth saving them because they're a really old heritage variety. I often use them just straight in a salad because they're so tender when they're fresh and sweet. And again, the more you pick, the more you'll get. And, you know, you can pick them when they're really quite small and only, you know, four or five centimetres long. They're just so good. I mean, my dog loves them. He will pick them off the plant, actually. If we're going to talk about pests, I'll say my dog is a pest in terms of that. Let's talk runner beans. I love them. They're really easy. The only thing that they demand is a bit of support. So you can either use, make teepees out of bamboo canes, you can make them out of hazel, you can make them out of anything you've got around. They'll grow up a trellis, they'll grow up a fence, they'll grow up your arm actually if you let them. Again, they're frost tender, so they don't like too cold, so they're high summer crops. I sow them undercover in May in uh, small pots and plant them out again when they fill their pots. They'll go pretty quick. They're tall, so they'll grow up to over six foot tall but they'll start flowering before they reach the top. And once they do reach the top of their supports, you can nip out the growing points and that'll allow the, the buds below to swell. They like lots of food and water, so make sure they get plenty of it because the more they get, the more they'll produce. And also the flowers are really, if you want ornamental in your veg plot, runner beans are the thing to do. You know, forget sweet peas. These things look great, but also you get to eat them. So you've got varieties like Scarlet Emperor, which has got red flowers, Another one called Painted Lady, which has got red and white flowers, and Czar, which is a white-flowered bean. But also you can leave the pods to mature and dry the beans inside the seeds. They're very much like butter beans, so you can use them over winter. So it's a really good way of extending your crop into the winter. You can sow them direct later on in late May after you know your frost is gone. You can sow two or three beans around a cane and thin them to the best one, and they'll just do their thing. Some great tips from Sylvia there. At the other end of the country, in the southeast, I love growing beans, but they suffer badly from dry soils in our hot, dry southeastern summers. So this year, I'm growing some of the runner beans that are crossed with French beans. There's one called Moonlight that I'm growing this year, and I've grown it before, but it's a very reliable one and produces crops, even if it turns dry at the soil and hot at night, which are things runner beans hate. So I'm looking forward to more reliable crops come August. Well, that's it for this week. If you'd like to know more about the topics we've covered in this week's show, then visit rhs.org.uk forward slash podcast. Until next time, it's goodbye from me, Guy Barter, 
And don't forget, flies are our friends. I'm walking down the path in my garden and I have a suggestion for you on how you could help with global warming. With a large lawn, I found a simple way of making a big difference. I sold my ride-on mower and bought a top-of-the-range Cress robotic lawnmower. It runs off rechargeable batteries and uses cutting-edge technology to mow and maintain a lawn this size. The petrol mower has gone, and with it, the emissions. I actually don't know why I didn't sell the ride-on sooner. With the Cress robotic lawnmower, the lawn is actually looking better. The tiny grass cuttings fall into the grass roots, helping to fertilize the grass. And the family doesn't have to put up with the noise and fumes from the ride-on. And I've freed up more of my time to spend with them and in the garden. It's an easy step. And you could also be making that change today. Ask for Cress in your local garden machinery dealer. Or visit cress.com. Discover the beauty of an RHS membership all year round. Save 25% off an RHS membership today when paying by direct debit. Prices start at just £55.50. With a membership, you'll gain access to an array of special events at our gardens all year round. Be the first to know about RHS flower shows and get exclusive member-only days plus reduced rate tickets. And you'll have the chance to enhance your gardening know-how with access to free expert garden advice, monthly editions of The Garden magazine, and so much more. Terms and conditions apply. <laughs>